0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlaps. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to AOC 2021, the A- the Association of Old Crows 58th Annual International Symposium and Convention. I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Samtech. Samtech is an international supplier of RF signal integrity and flexible power connectors. They provide exceptional service, quality products, and convenient design tools. Samtech understands that taking care of customers and their employees is paramount, which makes them the leader in the connector industry. We're here at AOC 2021, And as part of today's symposium agenda, I had the opportunity to join Michelle Flournoy, co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors, in a fireside chat. We covered a range of topics, including DOD transformation, great power competition, and affecting the culture of DOD to produce true leaders for change in the 21st century. Let's listen in.
1: Hello, and welcome to our Wednesday Spotlight Session. I'm Shelley Frost, Executive Director of the Association of Old Crows, and it's my pleasure to spend the next hour with you. This spotlight session is a fireside chat with Ms. Michelle Flournoy, the co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors, and Mr. Ken Miller, AOC Director of Advocacy and Outreach and also the host of From the Crow's Nest podcast and creator of History of Crows podcast. And if you haven't listened to the podcast yet, please do so. They are really great. I really highly recommend them. The History of Crows is my favorite, because I've loved discovering more about our history with them. And From the Crow's Nest is excellent at keeping up with what's important in our industry. You can scan the codes right on the screen or get them wherever you find your podcast. And with that, I'll invite Ken Miller to the stage to start our session. Ken, stage is yours.
0: All right, well, th- th- thank you, Shelley. Uh, and I wanna echo her welcome to everyone here to the final spotlight session for the day. Uh, we've had a lot of great presentations and breakout sessions over the last couple of days, and we have one more day to go. Uh, one of the, the, the messages are, that we've heard repeatedly over the last couple of days is that, of course, if we don't have the ability to achieve and sustain superiority in the EMS uh, at a time and place of our choosing, we're going to fail in our missions across all other domains. Uh, it's a pretty easy message to understand, and I think a lot many of our leaders get it, and I don't think there's any, many in this room that would disagree with that. Uh, but really it gets a lot harder when we start talking about how we get there. Uh, if, if I talk to everyone here out in the audience, I could probably come up with uh, a, a different solution and priority level for everybody for, for everyone that I talk to. So how do we, how do we harness those? Uh, ideas, those solutions, and you bring them together to transform DoD, particularly in this new era of great power competition. So with that, you know one of the things that we talked about day one, we, we focused a lot of, about strategy yesterday, and today is really about the leaders who roll up their sleeves to get the job done. And my guest here today is someone through, who throughout her career has rolled up her sleeves to, to change and transform DoD. Uh, So At this time, I'd like to welcome Ms. Michelle Flournoy. As Shelley said, she is the co-founder and managing partner of WestExec Advisors. Uh, Michelle is is, uh, the the founder and former chief executive officer and now chair of the Center for New American Security. Uh, she She served as undersecretary of defense for policy from February 2009 to February 2012. And she was the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations, quadrennial defense reviews, and in National Security Council deliberations. Uh, She has led the development of the Department of Defense's 2012 strategic guidance and represented the department in dozens of foreign engagements in the media and before Congress. So without further delay, I'd like to welcome Ms. Michelle Flournoy to the stage. All right. Well, it's great to have you here this afternoon. I appreciate you coming by and and, and helping us uh, wrap up day two of our convention. Um, You know, I've been looking forward to having you on, uh, having you here this afternoon for the last couple months since we uh, first asked you to come here because I think that when we, we, throughout these two days, we have so many ideas coming. We talk about so many ideas in our breakout sessions from technology to missions to uh, governance that it's really hard to, Harness those, bring those up to the strategic level again, and and zoom out and say, "How do we accomplish great change across DOD?" Uh, So, thank you for joining me, and uh, I'd like to just dive right in. Um, One of one of the uh, sessions that we had yesterday and was it was a great uh, discussion was on global security, and it was the the topic was the rise of the Taliban twenty years after. Afghanistan. And uh, across the panel, we had a great, pa- num- a great panel, and they basically laid out the, the map that the world is so increasingly complex, um, and the challenges are so great. And at every single point, those challenges will touch EMS at some point. So I wanted the first question is to really to have get your thoughts on global security today. What are some of the challenges that you see right in front of our face that we have to start to ha- ask the tough questions and find solutions for uh, across the board. Sure.
2: Well, it's great to be with you all uh, today. Uh, yeah, I really see us at a strategic inflection point. You know, we're, we're, cha- we're moving from one era that was really defined by the post 9-11 focus on counterterrorism and wars in the greater Middle East to now dealing with the rise of um, a, a potentially pure competitor, a strategic competitor like China, um, that will challenge us not only in the military domain, but economically, technologically, um, ideologically, Uh, and so forth. And you also have other powers like Russia, which may be more in decline, but it's still a great power. It still has uh, lots of resources to invest in gray zone operations and in military capabilities that will make life difficult for us if we ever had to confront them. Um, So we're at this change to really shift the focus to these strategic competitors. And that means, um, and yet, the, the challenges we face the last 20 years have not just disappeared. We still have to deal with counterterrorism operations. We still have instability and non-state actors that are giving us problems around the world. Um, at the same time, though, it's also a period of profound technological disruption. So the things that gave us our edge before may not be the things that will maintain and, and extend our edge in the future. So if we don't disrupt ourselves and stay on the cutting edge of technology in a whole host of areas, including things that affect our dominance across the spectrum, um, we will we will not be able to rest on our laurels as being the best military in the world. That has been a fact, but it's not necessarily going to be a fact in the future unless we stay ahead technologically. So it's a really, it's a period of profound change where the biggest challenge is, you know, what has served us well in the past won't necessarily serve us well in the future. So is, is, we've got to change our mindset. And
0: we change our mindset and that means all the assumptions that we used to have, not just in military uh, operations, but across commercial, mm-hmm. cultural, uh, and diplomatic ways of, of, of uh, engaging our, our competitors. Uh, we have to change all of our assumptions, and that has profound uh, implications across uh, you know, DOD. So I wanted to pull on the thread and talk a little bit about this notion of great power competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We've all seen PowerPoint slides of great power competition, and oftentimes it shows China, and it shows Russia, and it shows a front, and it shows the engagement of forces in a nice little OV-1 chart, but that's way oversimplified because when you talk about peer competition, you're not talking about just simply uh, you know, one country versus another, but there's global implications around the world, and how that uh, plays out in various parts of the globe, not just in Asia and not just mm-hmm. in the Eastern Europe. So, could you talk a little bit about this, you know, the, this uh, vision of great power competition and how that is being used to really kind of reset and re- ignite this transformation across DOD?
2: So I I think when you're right, when when we think about um, what we need to compete well vis-a-vis a pacing threat like China, you, you don't start with the military piece. You got to start here at home, and in, for me, it's really about investing in the drivers of our own economic and technological competitiveness. So, making sure we have robust research and develop, science and technology funding, research and development funding. Making sure we have, you know, we're updating our infrastructure, digital infrastructure in particular, for the 21st century. Smart immigration policy. I mean, one of our strengths as a nation is we've always been able to attract and then. Keep the best and brightest technical talent from around the world. If you look at Silicon Valley, and half the founders are either immigrants or first generation Americans. We need to keep being that talent mag- magnet to succeed in this competition. Um, uh, high access to higher education, STEM education. So there's, there are a lot of basic kind of foundational investments that we have to make to keep our competitive edge. The second area that I'd focus on is a unique area of strategic advantage for us, which is our allies and partnerships. Look at Russia, look at China, they don't have allies like, like we do. We have to really invest in those relationships, um, in building coalitions of like-minded states or coalitions that have common interests, but also helping to them to invest more in their own capability and capacity to contribute um, to the defense you know, of common interests in a region and to coalition operations and so forth. So you know, that's where I'd start, and then I'd ask the question, OK, what do we need to do to keep our military edge? And for me, the name of the game right now is really a focus on deterrence. You know, When we talk about China, when we talk about Russia, these are nuclear weapon states. Um, the whole name of the game is preventing conflict, uh, open conflict. And so there's a lot more that we can and should be doing to strengthen deterrence particularly vis-a-vis China in the coming years so,
0: so now you, you've just basically mapped out a good roadmap for, the, for our discussion here this afternoon because you know, I want to let's first talk a little bit about technology and then we'll, we'll talk about the other pieces so uh, to, to open up the convention this week, we had Undersecretary Heidi Shu mm-hmm. uh, speak to us and, and then uh, this morning we had Dr. Kelly Fletcher who's uh, performing the duties as CIO. Um, but a lot of the talk from these keynote presentations is about the rapid pace of technology. And we were in, in the back talking about, you know, there's the pace of technology development in DOD and there's a pace of technology development in, co- in the commercial sector. Um, and it's very daunting to think when we think of quantum and AI and machine learning and the exponential uh, the, the exponential growth of those technologies, the speed of those technologies, how do we harness that and, and, and use that to make sure that we can provide the right systems and capabilities to our warfighters? Yeah,
2: I think, you know, first of all, we have to place some big bets, and I'm sure Heidi, Shu talked about this, she's kind of stated where she thinks those bets are, and I think those are largely right. Um, but we actually have to you know demonstrate a commitment to multi-year investment at scale to attract the kind of not only the traditional defense players but the commercial innovation ecosystem to really invest in the in, alongside the government in those areas. Um, we also secondly have to make sure that we have a common set of standards and that we're not we're building open, you know, open architecture systems, uh, uh, um, oh, and and you all know more about this <laughs> than I do. But the gone are the days where a system is proprietary, data is proprietary. You've got to have systems that can pull data from across multiple places, put it in a common data lake, uh, and or or you, it can be more distributed. But the point is, you've got to have a common set of standards that everybody can plug and play. No more, you know, vendor lock. I'm the only only one who can manage data. I'm the only one who can give you access to your data and and, and give you insight from your data.
0: Because, because that te- that technology is, you have to have agility in that technology and be able to address yes. threats as they pop up and change yeah. constantly. And and the way that we have traditionally done that does not allow for that quick turnaround. That's right. Solution.
2: So the common standards allows you to you know keep I- integrating upgrades as as they come along. Um, in theory, <laughs> I think the third thing that really where we you know that where we can make a lot of progress. So the good news is Congress has given the DoD lots of flexible authorities. You know, you've got SIBRs, you've got OTAs, you've got all kinds of ways that you can rapidly prototype systems and tee them up to enter to become a program of record. Um, what we haven't done is figured out how to first of all train and incent the acquisition core to be comfortable doing agile development, to be comfortable accelerating the, that successful prototype across the acquisition valley of death and into a program of record, because that's not what the way they've been trained on. They've been trained to be highly risk averse, do everything possible to keep major complicated programs on time on schedule, on cost. And it's a different risk profile and a different set of behaviors that you have to adopt to do agile development and to oversee agile development and, and integrate that innovation into the force with speed and at scale. So we've got to train a new kind of special forces cadre, if you will, of the acquisition corps, and really incent and promote them and create career paths where they are really focused on emerging tech exclusively or primarily. And, um, and also, yeah. you know,
0: if can, really helping out small businesses gain more access yeah. to, to DoD, because you mentioned SIBRs and, and OTAs, and a lot of that is to try to bring money down to people who have really great ideas, but might not have the capacity to really enter the market at, yeah. at a particular time.
2: We at WestExec, a lot of what we're, you know, one of the more mission-focused parts of our business is helping small companies that have really eye-watering, cutting-edge technology find a way, and they're interested in national security and they wanna do their part, but they don't know how to navigate the system, so f- helping them figure out how to find that opening. The, what we're seeing, though, is even when they they get to a Cibers3 or they, you know, they they win a prototype or a demo com contest or whatever it is, that valley of death between that success and getting to into the program of record is is the problem. Um, So it's not, I think DoD's gotten a lot better at technology scouting and prototyping. We're still not adopting that innovation with speed and scale. And so they're left to either find a strategic partner who has familiarity with the process and contract vehicles and all that, Um, wait a year and a half or two to cross the valley of death, uh, and you know it's hope that their investors will go with them, which is not usually the case, um, or you know uh, it, it's just not the department needs to do more to meet them um, the, you know where they and bring them across that valley so,
0: so so what are what are some of the what are some of the recommendations that of things that we could do on that front that um, would encourage a, to close that that valley death a little bit because one or two years might not seem long to us but it's in technology that's an eternity. That's an eternity. And, and it's yeah. and, and, and for small business that's yeah. Again, the difference between life and you know going yeah. out of business. So um, there are ideas about how to do that. What are some of the, the the ideas that you've heard that may or may not actually work, but that are interesting that we need to continue to kind of think about in terms of solutions? So
2: I think one is you know having acquisition professionals that are really trained to use the authorities that Congress has provided, and they're incented to use those more flexible for authorities to get um, uh, programs across. Um, I think that it would be great to pilot an approach that for a given mission area, Congress would give the department some flexibility to make trade-offs to getting towards a specific solution or mission uh, capability, Um, and and so that over a multi-year period, you could make some puts and takes. You could evaluate, do what every other private sector CEO does, which is, you know, on a regular basis, quarterly or what have you, I'm going to look at my portfolio of investments, I'm going to see what's working, what's not, what's paying off, what's not, where do I want to accelerate, what do I want to drop and stop because it's just not working. The department doesn't have that flexibility. You could have Congress be, you know, a partner in that, have all kinds of reporting requirements, all kinds of transparency requirements, but you've got to let the department be able to Move more agilely as we learn what's, especially with new technology, what's really going to work, what's not. Um, So that that's an idea, Um, and then I think some some amount of funds that you know at the highest level, you could have a secretary or the deputy say, you know, I'm going to use this pot of money to bridge this capability from prototype into program of record, and I'm going to I'm going to bridge that valley of death. And in that 18-24 month period to keep development going before, until I can get it, you know, get the uh, the appropriate service to really jam, jam it into their program of record. Um,
0: so, so, so when we talk about you know funding for program of records, there's funding for resourcing some of this new technology and, and some of these new ideas, um, you know, every, every obviously we have the the congressional the, the defense budget coming through, um, and. What we see now is obviously looking forward. We're 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 realizing that we're we face a lot of constraints in budgeting, and we have to resource properly and prioritize. So, how do we go about growing? How do we go about improving resourcing for new technologies for small business for these next generation capabilities in a budget constrained environment um, where we can. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a host of trade-offs and a lot of them are competing. So how do we make those decisions? How do we get that out to the leaders to really think critically about uh, areas that we need to invest and what does that mean in terms of overall priorities for the defense budget?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we, we, we haven't talked about yet that's a real long pull in the tent is concepts of operations. I mean, this new set of challenges we face requires new thinking about how we're actually going to operate to achieve our objectives in a highly contested, congested um, environment where you're going to have constant attacks, persistent attacks of all kinds against every aspect of our network of networks, whether it's sensors or communications or the spectrum or you know, uh, command and control nodes and what have you, all domains, etc. And so, you know, you've got to think about a very different way of operating, um, or different ways of operating across the services and joint, and from a joint perspective. And so, um, that has that that thinking has to inform a lot of experimentation and efforts to prove those concepts out, but it also needs to inform uh, where we're investing and where we're divesting. The hardest part, it's easy to get everybody to say, okay, what are the top you know, 10, 12 technology bets we want to make, and what would, you know, what's Heidi shoe 's dream, dream list? It's hard to say, okay, how are you going to pay for that, and it means that all of us have to. Do the hard make the hard decision to let go of certain things that have served us very well in the past, but may not do the job in the future? Uh, and that's hard. I mean, I'm not saying ditch the legacy force. I don't even know what that means. I mean, we've we've built systems that we're going to be using and, and operating with for the next decades. The question is, how do you adapt that legacy force with new capa- integrating new capabilities and and new concepts to give it a new level of type of performance for this very different environment? And But there are some trade-offs. You're maybe going to have to buy fewer of a certain platform in order to equip that the remaining plat- numbers of that platform with far greater, you know, EW capabilities or cyber capabilities or weapons capabilities or things that give it greater range and precision in a denied environment.
0: Well, and when we talk about military advantage, you know, obviously we, we can't have advantage across everything all the time. We have right. to figure out what where do we need the advantage and at, at what point in time? Um, and one of the things that we've talked about from an uh, EMS superiority standpoint is what steps can we take that increase risk for our peer competitors and increase their cost of in, yeah. uh, 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 in, in the competition cycle? So um, how, how does that, and when you, when you think about resourcing, when you think about you know transforming DoD, how, can you talk a little bit about how DoD thinks in terms of increasing cost and risk on peer competitors and how that influences the decision-making process?
2: So I think we, we have to do everything we can to reduce a competitor's confidence in that their aggression can be successful. That really is the heart of deterrence. Either by demonstrating that we can deny their success or demonstrating that we can impose such costs that they decide it's not worth it. Um, but the, you know, EW has a huge role to play in in making, for example, you know, the PLA or the PLAN doubt their ability their capabilities doubt their you know make them think about well maybe maybe this isn't going to work maybe i'm going to be disrupted maybe i you know think my i've confidence that my i'm finding and fixing something here but then oops it's showing up over here what just happened i'm not really sure what's happening to my systems i don't have confidence you know even from the tactical level to the strategic where we just comp- we do enough to complicate their attack planning such that they have too many problems to solve and they decide that maybe today's not a good day to invade Taiwan or whatever they're thinking about doing. Um, so there's that offensive piece, um, which is very, very important. But then we also, on the defensive side, we have to build our confidence that our systems will operate, uh, allow us to be effective under any circumstance. So we have to build a more resilient system. So if one part of the network goes down, Thing, the traffic's being rerouted to another, and you're still making the key connections between the sensor and the shooter and the decision maker. Um, it has to be an intelligent system where we're using AI to enable better uh, sorting the wheat from the chaff and the sea you know, of, of you know, the overwhelming amount of information that's in the system, making sure that the decision makers are getting the key insights to enable Better, faster decisions than an adversary, um, and and that you know we've got that you know it's a decentralized n- uh, network of network with m- leveraging much more compute at the edge, so things don't have to go all the way back to command center and all the way back out for for prosecution of a target. So there's just a lot that has to come together, and it's not that we have to know how it, how. Every individual problem will be solved, you know, at a given moment. It's more that we, we have faith, you know, that we we, we trust the result. We build a trustworthy system that is resilient, intelligence, and agile, so that we we you know the kind of the way most people, not always, you know, know that the electrical grid, if in in the best infrastructure, where the best infrastructure is in place. We don't experience a lot of blackouts or even brownouts because the system, when something does go down, it reroutes and it keeps the lights on. Or maybe you have some backup generators that are keeping lights on. But you have a set, some redundancy and resilience and intelligence in the system that is going to find a way to, to allow that fine, fix, fi- finish kind of uh, process to happen again and again. So-
0: Right. And so as we're trying to build that confidence, uh, you know, a lot a big portion of that is the user group. And in our case, it's the warfighter, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're comfortable with the capabilities that they have. And that goes back to training, it goes back to, uh, you know, testing, testing, uh, testing and evaluation of the equipment. Uh, Some of the conversations we've had this this week have been about how we can better embed the warfighter with the. in the technology development process, so that they can actually help. Say, here, okay, I see what you're doing on the technology side. Here's what I, uh, here's what I'm confronting in the operational side, and this is what I could do with it. Yeah, and and getting that feedback so that the warfighter then has confidence that the systems and the capabilities that we're giving them out out there. Uh, are going to work when they need them to work. Yeah.
2: It's this kind of soldier touch points or troop touch points are really really key to this notion of agile development. You've got to have them, you know, playing with the the technology, providing feedback to the developers, having them refine it, going out again, trying it again, and that's got to continue through the development cycle, but it also has to change how we think about operational test and evaluation. But particularly for AI based systems, it's not like you, you te- finish testing and then you deploy and you're done. I mean, you have to, you know, this has to be an iterative process that continues, particularly with AI based systems, as, as the system encounters new operational environments, or if you perfect it for one environment and now you're going to go use it in another, that may create all kinds of new challenges, risks, unexpected behaviors that, you you know, again, so that that it has to be an ongoing iterative approach, not just a one and done, and now we deploy and we don't think about it anymore.
0: Um, so, so I wanted to move on to the second point that you mentioned back at the beginning when we mapped out kind of with the Great Power Competition, the three challenges, one was technology, the second one was international partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, AOC is an international association, and we have, uh, we have about 30% of our membership are around the world uh, in, in uh, over 20 countries. Uh, so... Uh, and so international partnerships are extremely important. What are some of the things that you see working on the international partnership front uh, that we need to continue to pursue? And what are some of the things that uh, we need to work a little bit better at because we're, 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 not, uh, we're, we're not addressing some of the challenges when we think global security?
2: Well, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's really the only way that we can have enough capacity to cover down on uh, an area like the Indo-Pacific or even you know thinking about Europe and and NATO and the resurgence of problems with Russia there um you know it back in the day we used to have this well-oiled machine if you take something like you know ASW you know we had uh, hand, you know hand in glove kind of relationships at the tactical and operational level with our allies so that you know you could have P3s flown by different countries or you know hand off Soviet submarine targets all the way, they came out of their bastions all the way down the coast of Europe, down into the Mediterranean, all the way back, and handing off from one ally to the other, never losing custody of that target because it was this very well-oiled practiced machine. We need to do that kind of thing uh, with our allies um, uh, more and more, we need to regain that kind of Um, degree of integration and interoperability Um, I think there's opportunity also to start at the front end with doing more technology investment and development together and to build some of these solutions from the start with the intent of being shareable with our allies and partners rather than building an exquisite highly classified system that is US and then think uh oh now we how do we share this with NATO it's really important that we share this with NATO and now we've got to rethink lots of it to to, to and inc- inc- incur a lot of costs in doing that to make it export and, and, uh, exportable. And
0: so, and when you, and you when you go around the world and you you, you talk to our partners, uh, one of the things that I've seen is that. Um, you know, not every country. Every country looks at the threats a little bit differently, and what the capabilities yeah. that they can bring to the table. Some of them have very niche capabilities. They're fantastic, yeah. maybe in, in in cyber, or fantastic in self-protection, yeah. or in some other areas. How do how can the U.S. better leverage some of those niche capabilities? Become interoperable with them yeah. so that they do their yeah. they, they can respond better and they can improve, but then we can also learn from them. So
2: I like the idea. This is something we came up with back in the NATO context a long time ago, this notion of capability clusters. So not everybody has to be good at everything, and nor will they be. But if you if you define a particular problem set and, and a set of technologies that are going to be relevant to that problem, you could look across a set of allies or partners and pretty quickly pick out the three or four that really have cutting edge either defense capability or co- relevant commercial capability. Um, to, to work together and and be uh, you know um, be very productive working together on a problem set, and then in you know for another set of countries it's going to be a different or another technology area it'll be a different combination of countries. But we need to do that analysis to say who are our best par- partners in a given area. Like if you were looking at chip manufacturing, it would be us the so- you know the South Koreans, the Japanese, and the Dutch, you know, or whatever you know maybe maybe others as well, but. But if you're looking at some, some other aspect, I mean, I'm not an EW expert enough to know exactly what those clusters look like within EW, but I bet all of you could spend a half hour and come up with some pretty good ideas of what those clusters look like. And then we need to really engage them with concrete projects of, like, here's a problem that we're gonna have to solve. How do we go after this together? What's the, where does it make sense to do it jointly? Where does it make sense to divide the labor? And to leverage that that capability and those partners,
0: because you know we, we talked about you know how how do you increase risk for your adversaries? But and we just talked about confidence yeah. here at home, but helping us to increase the confidence of our partners so that they know that they by working with us they can address some of their challenges locally yeah. is, is I think a big step into uh, improving some of these yeah. uh, avenues. The
2: same is true for commercial partners. I mean, if you know one of the ways to. Really complicated. An adversary's planning and thinking is, you know, what if military critical payloads are not like in space, are not just on military satellites, but they're highly distributed across commercial constellations? That there's no way an adversary is going to take down the entire commercial constellation. You know, and the rest, or the rest of the world will be, you know, uh, you know, immediately um, against them. But and, it, and it's also just impossible, so I mean we also have to think about that resilience and that partnership in the in the sort of military commercial sense as well
0: so I want to talk a little bit about this commercial military partnership um, you know when you look at you know the, the commercial sector it's we say we, we, we say commercial sector, but that's it's not that simple but um, the, the, this, this notion of how do we, in the US, we have a lot of self imposed constraints about how, you know, the separation between commercial and defense sectors that uh, some of our adversaries don't have to deal with, but we can actually maybe bridge some of those gaps dealing with the partners. Can you talk about how DOD uh, and the defense industrial base in general can, can better partner with the commercial sector to bring in, to maybe utilize their strengths better to provide? Uh, more more uh, capability for our forces around the world.
2: So I think it it, it starts with uh, better and more consistent and deeper dialogue, where the DoD and the military, for its part, has to be uh, find more ways to share. You know what are my problem sets? You know what I'm, what are the things that I'm wrestling with where I need help, um, and. The truth is, because of past missteps in the acquisition process, that whole dialogue is so, I mean, forgive me if you're a lawyer, but so lawyered up, there's so many constraints on what a DOD leader can say to industry for fear of biasing a future acquisition or giving someone an unfair advantage. It's very, they find, you know, people find it very difficult just to get in a room and say, here are my problems, can you help? Um, we 're not even talking about a contract or an acquisition yet i 'm just trying to share with you my my problems and my challenges and see what 's out there and where you can help um, Secondly we need to, the DoD needs to do a better job of finding of, of figuring out what is out there and what it, where is the cutting edge and commercial and we We have gotten better at that scouting, but it 's not as um, Systematic or as productive as it needs to be, you know to to really bring to cross the divide. Um, uh, and then I think you know we need to uh, uh, do a better job of using um, government investment to attract private sector capital to go after some of these big challenges. and that means, you can't just budget uh, year on year. You know, you have to make a multi-year commitment. You have to make a big bet. You have to communicate, "Hey, look, Department of Defense is going to spend X billion dollars on AI or hypersonics or new EW solutions, whatever it is, over the next five years, um, and we're going to have a series of competitions on these problem sets. You know, come one, come all. We're going to put some serious money in." venture community, we want you to put money in, DOD, uh, traditional prime contractors, we want you to put your IRAD in, and we're going to structure a set of competitions where everybody, you know, may the best companies win. Um, That's very hard to do in the current environment, but this is something where we've got to bring Congress along too, because if you have this annual uncertainty, and every year we're fearing uh, uh, you know, a continuing resolution, no new starts, no unpredictable funding streams, you're not gonna get the commercial center sector to, co- to come to the table, particularly the venture sector. But if you give them a predictable pathway to return on investment and a chance to compete over time and win, they will bring more money than the US government could possibly bring to the table. So we've gotta figure out how to do that.
0: So, so, kind of pulling that thread a little bit, you know, when we talk about you know leveraging their ideas, bringing their ideas to the table, a key part of that is the workforce, um, and that was kind of the third point that you raised yeah. at the beginning. This this notion of of, uh, of of reaching out and building up the the STEM community, uh, the, the the younger generations that are coming in uh, to the profession. How do we leverage their ideas and creativity? One of the great things we have. Uh, each year at the convention, we have a group of uh, en- young engineers from uh, NAS Pax River, mm-hmm. uh, not too far from here. They come up here to DC and uh, spend the day with us. And I had a, co- a few of them on my podcast earlier today, um, just basically talking about how, you know the start of their career in engineering mm-hmm. and what they bring to the table. And you know they, they talk a lot about you know they have a, a, a unique ability to be creative and think outside the box for solutions and and getting this process in DOD to accept that, where you can kind of step back and step away from what's familiar and accept that creativity of yeah. the younger generation. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how we can better harness that young, uh, the, the young creativity, yeah. because that's so, so important, because they're the ones that are thinking f- five years down yeah. the road.
2: Yeah, so several things. One, if you look inside the, the military, every year, you know, whether it's the academies or ROTC programs, we graduate you know, a, a very large number of STEM graduates into the US military. It's a, almost impossible to be a technologist and reach general officer or flag rank in the United States military. It's an accident if it happens, right? So we don't we take people, we train people who are really interested in being technologists and they they're and they're strong and they've got the right attributes and then we funnel them into other there's no you know other career paths where they don't get to use that. And so we need to take some create some technologist career paths within the military and allow people who have attributes and aptitude to have a career as technologists. That's that's thing one. Same thing on the civilian side. We have to do a better job of creating those career paths and those incentives um, and mentoring those folks and, and so forth, and giving them a chance to go out into the commercial world and then come back in. I think we also, though, need a civilian reserve. We need um, avenues so that you could take someone who's you know, uh, done years as a product manager at a tech company, made a lot of money, now wants to serve their country. How do they come in? To do a tour of duty at DOD or do five years at DOD, like how how does that happen and how does that work? We make it so so hard, almost impossibly hard, for that to happen. Um, Young people who are out in these tech in Silicon Valley, how do we enable them to hack for their countries on the weekends or contribute? You know, if we make them meet military fitness requirements, sort of other requirements um, that are really not relevant to their duties. Um, we're not going to get them in the door, but if you told them you don't have to remove your tattoos or your, you know, your body body hardware, or and you don't have to pass a PT test. But you know, um, you can, you know, we're gonna we're gonna find you a way to serve your country by contributing on the weekends. They would they would sign up in a second. So we've got to be a lot more flexible and creative in the, in in accessing the human capital and then having career paths that actually keep them connected. Because if you know, the mission is incredibly compelling. The problem sets are incredibly compelling. Um, and the desire is there. Um, I meet people every day who tell me they'd like to serve, but they can't get over the obstacles as a technologist to do so. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got to figure out how to fix that problem.
0: So, so in, in the remaining minutes, I wanted to kind of, we, these are some great recommendations and touching on a lot of different points. So I wanted to kind of zoom back out a little bit when we you know' addressing this notion of great power competition transformation. Um, you know it's it's obviously been around for time immemorial this idea of of assessing your strengths and, and and adapting your military capabilities to uh, to achieve a superiority against your competitor but over the last 30 40 years uh, here in the u.s and and uh, you know there's been several points of time where that's kind of triggered great transformation obviously post cold war you had uh you know, the uh, Gulf War, and then you had, of course, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, where it's kind of triggered, it sent us into counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, and now we come into great power competition. So we've had a lot of opportunities or a lot of uh, episodes where we can Think, talk about transformation. What have we learned from previous transformation episodes? And your career spans about 30 years touching five different administrations. You've dealt with this through QDRs, through uh, engagements, other defense publications and assessments. What are some of the lessons you've learned or DOD has learned over the last 30 years that would really serve us well to pay attention to today as we're trying to transform and, and adapt to this notion of great power competition?
2: Um, First of all, I think from the period that led up to the incredible precision strike and ISR capabilities that we saw for the first time fully demonstrated in the first Gulf War, when you look at that period, it was a period where you had technologists like Bill Perry at the time, later became SecDef, but at the time was DDR&E, really driving a set of technology bets but then pairing it with a lot of work on concept, new concepts of operation and new thinking about you know, how you connect sensor to shooter to actual prosecution of a target and the command and control architecture and all of that. So it was this marriage of both technology innovation and conceptual innovation, Um, and then driving it into the service budget so that you actually had not just the beautiful shiny object platforms, but the EW systems, the comm systems, the ISR systems, the munitions buys in those budgets to actually bring it all together you know, in a in a campaign.
0: So, so with that, r- real quickly, you know, one of the trends that we see, of course, when when we talk EW, is you know, in, in the past, it's always been about the EW box that, yeah. that that did EW, and 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 that's no longer really the case. We're 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 trending toward multifunction. Yeah. So you have a system that can do radar, that can do e, uh, SIGINT, that can do EW. Uh, industry can make them; they make them today. We can do a lot on the multifunction front, but DoD acquisition really doesn't. Quite yet know how to buy those. Right. Um, so, how can we, when, when you talk about you know harnessing that and driving that into the service budgets, how can we do a better job at really changing how we budget and how we prioritize our research so that we can think multifunction and think that we don't need one system to do one thing. We need a, We need to buy a capability. We need to go across. You know, have a, a multifunction system that can do many things and change. How, how do we? factor that into the into the acquisition system.
2: Well, this is where I think, you know, moving towards in some cases a more at least the front end a more agile development process, it is bringing the the operator, the technology the developer and the procurer, the program manager together to see what this thing is capable of and and all of that. You know, the, I think we are so imprisoned by this very Exacting sequential requirements definition process. We we define the requirements to such the nth degree, and then we're in a straitjacket, and we can't make the rational cost capability trade-offs. We can't see that this new thing that's possible that we didn't think about when we were defining the requirements. It doesn't fit the requirements. It's better than the requir- it out you know performs the requirements. So we have got to create more. Um, you know, flexibility in that system. And again, I think that Congress's Given us some flexibility in that process, I think the work that Ellen Lord did in the last administration, trying to create a more streamlined approach to, you know, particularly to software defined systems, you know, it's there, but we, again, we are not training people on how to do it. We're not incentivizing and rewarding them when they do accept a little more risk and do it. And then we aren't, like, really, we haven't cracked the code on accelerating the adoption of that innovation at speed and scale. When we do have a breakthrough. So, I mean, again, all of that, all of that has to be worked. But I did want to, on your prior question, the other the other key thing that's key to these transformative periods are um, creating environments where you're incentivizing kind of conceptual ferment. I mean, it's a time, you know, when you look at these periods of change, it's a time when you know, you've got the serv- the various publications, whether it's proceedings or whatever, you know, whatever the, the publications are, where you've got kind of rogue thinkers publishing new ideas that counter, you know, that break doctrine, that go against the conventional thinking, if, and that those are tolerated and lifted up and debated it's, it's as opposed to sidelined or exiled, right? You've got sponsored, you know, environments where people are Put in a room and said the only rules of the war game are you gotta use this new toolkit that you've never tried before and you gotta break current doctrine and they let people see what come they come up you know you don't develop operational concepts top down by what you can all agree on you develop new concepts through competition and seeing what works and trying and failing and trying again so that that has and that, that's something I don't see. Happening with the kind of level of energy and urgency that's needed for this new new period that we're in.
0: So, so a, a lot of this that we talked about though is, is going to require a great deal of leadership from yep. DOD. And uh, you know, you you've had a career of being a leader. Um, and I wanted to talk with you about you know when when you look at EW and you look at MSO and some of the the the, the, the uh, lessons that we've learned is that we need strong leaders. And it's one thing to get leaders thinking and looking in one direction. It's a whole other thing to get leaders moving in one direction. Yeah. Um, And that requires people to be able to take risks, use their authority, and become problem owners where they're responsible. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how we can facilitate this, how we can build leadership in DoD. How can we mobilize the leadership that we have? We have some great, tremendously smart people in DoD. How do we use that to actually achieve sustainable progress and transformation?
2: You know, I think um, leadership really does matter. I do think it's very important. You know, when you're in these positions, my old position included, you know, I used to talk about the tyranny of the inbox or the tyranny of the schedule, where I felt like I was just surviving <laughs> my, the next deputy's meeting or the next, you know, secretarial visit or the next thing. And if you're not careful, you can just be a slave to the demands that, that are coming your way, you have to be very deliberate in setting a very clear set of priorities of, in my three or four year tenure, whatever I have, these are the five concrete things, maybe even th- just three. You know, These are the things I want to change, I want to get done. And you have to ruthlessly you know, manage your time, your calendar, your effort, your bandwidth, to those objectives, and then you have to do the same thing with all of your reports, several layers down. Like, what are the three things that you are going to accomplish to move the ball forward in this time frame? And that's what you're going to be evaluated on, not how many you know other meetings you go to or whatever. And you have to carve out bandwidth, you know, and time to do that. And there's an accountability issue. You have to be willing to to um, to hold people accountable when they don't perform, and you have to align the incentive structure to get them to keep aligning on those common objectives. Um, And then you've you've gotta make examples of people, and I love this one, you know, this is something that Hondo Gertz did when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Acquisition, Um, You know, he was trying to get the system to adopt greater risk tolerance, to embrace a more agile development process. So he made the acquisition officer of the year someone who failed. (laughs) He, he, He was in an agile development process. The first thing they tried, it failed. They learned from the failure quickly, they, they re, rejiggered things, they launched again, and then it was a great success. So the guy who failed the first year, he was the acquisition of the year because he was embracing this new approach and he got it and it worked you know, and, and so forth. So he's trying to hold that up of, hey people, this is what I'm celebrating, not the person who was so risk averse and so afraid that they just kind of stuck to the usual approach and we didn't get anywhere.
0: So so failure can be a pathway to success. It
2: can be. It has to. I mean, it, it, you cannot do agile development without failure. I mean, you cannot move at the speed of technology without experiencing some failure.
0: So, so last question, and, and this will be a bit of a softball to kind of close out the session. But we have here at AOC, and we were talking a little bit about AOC before we came out. And you know, we have about 1,800 people here across industry uh, globally re- representing uh, countries around the world, ind- industry, military. Uh, we have young crows, what we call young crows, the young engineers. <laughs> um, and we certainly do have old crows. Mm-hmm. Um, what? What message do you have for organizations like the AOC that are out here, we bring the communities together here, what does DOD need to hear from us as an association to help address some of these challenges uh, that they face across STEM and across international partnerships and technology development?
2: You know, I I think that it's hard to imagine a more important and a consequential time for you know, a community like this. In that, if we are able to find ways to keep advantage, you know, in in the world of EW across the spectrum, that is going to be a you know, that is going to help us deter. Hopefully, deter, and if if we can't deter, win, uh, um, or you know, fight and win, if we don't. Figure out how to solve the problems in, your, in this domain, we are going to be in a world of hurt and we're going to experience much higher cost and risk in the future in ways that can be very, very damaging for a national interest. So I think this community showing up, standing up, and saying, hey, you know, we want to be part of the solution, we have ideas, we want to be your partner, we want to you know, uh, develop technology with you, experiment with you, help you get to the new operational concepts, help you figure out the integration of innovative systems on legacy platforms, you know, help you crack the code. You know, we want to be your partners and and uh, we're with you. Uh, and here are the, you know, here's what we're seeing, here's our ideas, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, that's, what you need to do and and I applaud you for continuing to do that. And if the department isn't creating all the right venues and fora for you to do that, you create the fora and venues and you invite them to come to you. Um, Sometimes you have greater flexibility to do that.
0: Great. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have for this afternoon. I really appreciate you taking time to join us. um, And I really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you about uh, this this issue area and about AOC and and how we're trying to, I think we share a lot of the same priorities here and and what we're doing to address this. So thank you for your time and I greatly appreciate you.
2: Thanks for having me and best of luck to all of you. you.
0: That is all the time we have for this episode. I want to thank our sponsor, Samtech. Samtech is the service leader in the connector industry. Uh, that will conclude this episode of From the Crows Nest here at AOC 2021. Join us tomorrow on the third and final day of the AOC Symposium. We'll have a morning brew session in the morning for you and interviews with our keynote speaker, Lieutenant General Clinton Highnote and Brian Clark from the Hudson Institute. To learn more, visit our website at crows.org slash 2021 home. Thanks for listening.